and welcome to The Future Report, a podcast hosted by social research company McCrindle for anyone curious about the future. My name is Ashley Fell, and each week I'll be sitting down with a guest to discuss a topic or trend that you need to know about. Welcome back to another season of The Future Report podcast. Over the last few weeks, Mark McCrindle and I have been out traveling and sharing insights at some conferences across Europe and the United States, which after the last two years of closed borders has been a bit of a treat for us. So we thought we would start the next season of this podcast by chatting all things international conferences and what traveling looks like post-COVID. So Mark, welcome back to the Future Report podcast. Thanks, Ash. Great to be back for another season. Great to be back in the office. Great to be back in the country. Now, it might be a bit premature of me to say we're in a post-COVID time. And it was interesting because when I came back, so I was in Europe for a couple of conferences. And when I made my way back to the team, it felt, you know, like it was post-COVID because of my experience over overseas. And I made the joke in the office to the team that is 2022 even a COVID year? And all the team were like, yeah, unfortunately, I think it is. Um, but it's just been an interesting experience to be back out and traveling again. Mark, you were in the United States. How How was your trip? <laughs> yeah, great. It was excellent. Always good to go to the Northern Hemisphere in, in their summer uh, mm. and escape a little bit of, uh, of winter down under. And I had a similar experience that, uh, that it didn't feel like COVID was a thing anymore. And you would still see signs around masks and social distancing, but they were very tired and tatty and almost uh, a relic of a bygone era that had long since passed. Because when you walk around, when you interact, you know, hardly a mask to be seen. And certainly in the US where I traveled, um, it was like it was a post-COVID existence, which was you know, great Great to see, great to be part of, and uh, and the freedoms were back, and everyone was was into normal activities. And again, partly it's that it's summer, both their holiday and the the temperature of, of that time of year, uh, and the season means that you know less less spread of these diseases. But um, but certainly it had that feeling of, um, of of COVID being a thing of the past. Yeah, and I mean, same for me in terms of going to. Europe. So it was obviously summer over there and a very hot summer that they're having. Um, I was a bit taken aback. I thought, oh, I'm from Australia. I'll be fine. But we went to um, Portugal, which was a bit more a bit more of a temperamental sort of uh, temperature. It was a bit nicer there uh, in like the sort of late 20s in terms of temperature. But Italy, where we spent two weeks, was like 38 degrees almost every day. And now they're in like the heat wave and they've got some fires over there. It's pretty full on. But um, yeah, I mean, especially even being in Italy, it was a bit wild in terms of a lot of the locals that we spoke to said, yeah, it's it's a relaxed country anyway. We're a relaxed people. They kind of were sharing a bit about why COVID exploded early on for them. And I remember it was just surreal being in a country that we heard on the news that cases were growing. But it was also interesting just to chat to people who were other speakers at the conferences we were involved with when we were on more of in a holiday mode, chatting to people on our Airbnb, you know, experience tours and you'd share that you're from Australia and they'd say, oh, wow, Australia's have, have had it tough lately. Yeah. Like we were the poster child 
early on in the pandemic. And then I even just sharing that we only came out of lockdown like at the beginning of this year and everyone else is like, what? We haven't been in lockdown for, for ages. I mean, did you get any, you know, experiences like that in, in terms of people hearing where you're from, Mark? It was that feel, you know, in some ways, Brand Australia, which used to have this image of being carefree and she'll be right and we can handle anything, this can-do attitude, uh, it has been damaged a little bit because uh, mm. we are known around the world. I found this when I was in the US as well. Oh, Australia, you know, you, you guys are the lockdown capital, um, which does belong the the image that used to present you know they're saying i thought you guys you know, wrestled crocodiles and you were fine with snakes and <laughs> spiders and the, this covid thing you guys really been freaking out down there um uh, and and i think that's the case that we have shown ourselves as a nation here to be a bit more anxious we have shown ourselves to be you know highly compliant we like to think we're a bit anti-authority but that's not the case we like to think that that we're skeptical of government and indeed that uh, that there's low trust in government and leadership well not at all you know, Australians are tuned into to what the numbers have been doing or what the health messages are. And even even though we've we've eased on from the worst of it, uh, there's still a sense that if there are these recommendations, not even mandates mandates now, but recommendations that Australians not wholly, but to some extent, start to tune in and and respond. Well, that's not at all what I was seeing in the US. And you know, they are the land of the freedom, the land of independence, the land where skepticism against government and bureaucracies runs deep. And so I certainly found that independent streak and that pushback on this whole thing pretty strong. They're definitely living with, not not uh, not fearful of um, COVID and, um, and that that has come through. And it was quite interesting for me to see that contrast, as you found, Ash, you know, going from other countries where everyone is chilled to coming back to Australia where, you know, we're, we're, we're quite um, tuned into the health messages still and, and opting into some of these, uh, you know, mask wearing and social distancing still. And, um, and probably the other thing I would say about America is that they, they still, they have this global role. I mean, they have for you know a century, and so they they don't look to other countries to work out what to do. They tend to just sort of make their own decisions. Uh, that never crosses our mind here in Australia. We're always looking what what's happening in Asia. What's the pandemic doing in 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 Europe and the US? What, what are the what's the lay of the land there? And we respond to that. We'll even sometimes look to what New Zealand's doing and and respond uh, rather than hey, we're leaders. We don't need to look at anyone else. So so that does play into our mind. We're comparing our stats to other countries. Countries. The US doesn't look anywhere else. They make their own decisions, set the lead, and right now, you know, they're moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting reflection there, even on brand Australia and what people's perception of us globally is and how that has changed as a result of our response to, yeah numbers and case rises and um, the lockdowns especially. I imagine many listeners maybe haven't had an opportunity to travel overseas. Um, we've been talking to our colleagues and peers and in even in the couple of weeks since we've been back and it seems like people are still a little bit conservative around international travel and I mean I fully understand that. You and I were both heading over there uh, for work. My husband and I tacked on a bit of a holiday because you know it's so far away. It takes so long to get there and every time you speak to someone and they say Oh, you're from Australia. Yeah, a lot of, do Australians love holidays? Because every time we talk to someone, they're always here for a few weeks. I'm like, yes, but also it's just so far to, to go and to travel and all that, those long haul flights. But I mean, I know for me, I was feeling a little bit 
anxious, even like you mentioned, Australians maybe are a bit more anxious than we realise, but partly because I was due to go overseas earlier in the year and that trip got sort of cancelled um, at the last minute. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to book too much too soon, just going to moderate the expectation, moderate the hopes a little bit. But it all happened. It was all very seamless. And I mean, even again, thinking about Australia compared to other countries, you know, we did a lot of research in the lead up to going away and ticked all the boxes uh, in terms of getting your negative PCR test and having an international vaccination passport. But to be honest, not much was really checked in many places over there because many people are relaxed. And like we mentioned, they're in the the thick of their sort of uh, summer over there. But Mark, how was your travel experience in terms of, you know, we've seen even just the horror images of like Heathrow Airport and all the bags just there. And we know airports have been under such pressure and stress coming back from an you know an industry that really got negatively impacted by the pandemic did you have any travel qualms or everything pretty serious because I imagine many people like what was international travel even like now but everything was okay for you it was it was pretty seamless uh you know there's been more issues for me traveling domestically over the last (laughs) few weeks than than the international trip and and in some ways it's that probably we're coming to it domestically from a different experience. I mean, we used to have sure. not many queues going through uh, our security checks. We can carry water and liquids domestically. You don't have to generally take your shoes off when you travel um, domestically through the through the security uh, checks. Uh, the US is, is always full on and has been since September mm-hmm. 11. And so it's no liquids and it's shoes off and belt off and the full scanning machines that you have to step into. And so there's always going to be queues with that. Um, they are geared up for that. And and now, um, you know, the queues are the same as they've always been. So I found that pretty seamless and and no problems. Uh, meanwhile, domestically here, suddenly queues have blown out and, uh, and you can't quite you know, assume that uh, 20 or 30 minutes is going to be enough to, to get before your flight to get to the airport, it's all changed. So so we're just having to adjust to that. Uh, also, I found that the on-time departures internationally and some of the domestic I did in the US uh, was very smooth. Again, we're used to high efficiency domestic travel here. And if flights are cancelled or delayed an hour, you know, we can't work out what's going on. So probably we've yeah. been coming to it from a, a really well-oiled machine domestically to now queues and delays and cancellations. And we're quite shocked. So certainly hoping that the domestic side of things gets back on track pretty quickly, uh, but I found no issues with the international travel. Yeah, we it's almost like we've been maybe a little bit spoiled here in Australia in terms of we don't have as big a population as some of the other places we've travelled to. And so, yeah, we do have high expectations of, of the travel industry. And I guess everyone I spoke to as well, um, you know, all of the customer service staff and everyone on the flights and everyone was really lovely. And even though I imagine, yeah, can't imagine I was trying to put myself in the shoes of a flight attendant or I was trying to think, oh, were they, I wonder what their experience experience has been for the last few years. If they come on since COVID or have they um, been one of those people that were stood down? What was their experience like working in travel? So yeah, the world has has changed and we've all changed, but we've also yeah experienced what it's like overseas over the last few months where they're kind of getting on with it, which is fascinating. And I guess a big part of or the main reason that we both were heading over there was for events and conferences. And again, that industry has been hugely changed by COVID-19. I remember uh, we wrote a report called The Future of Events because we like to operate in that space of predicting trends and looking at uh, insights and and research base, but also overlaying that with the human perspective and technology and like work. You know, some of the events are moving hybrid and it's great that if we need to, we can do a presentation online, we can uh, tune into events virtually 
Uh, the, the conferences I ran, I was involved with two while I was over there. The first one was a really big one and they had thousands of people there. And uh, yeah, again, just being in a big hall with thousands of people, no one really worrying about masks. It was a di- different, interesting experience. It was lovely actually. And I think it was fascinating because it was a big expo as well and they were really um, trying to attract people to Porto, so a, a lesser known sort of city as opposed to Lisbon in Portugal and showing off that area. But I feel like they were putting in so much effort to make the event experience something that people wanted to go to and travel to. Um, and the second event I was involved with, which was in Italy, was a smaller event and that was a bit more of a hybrid. They had some people tuning in online. But I think it's also an interesting sort of world to be thinking about in terms of what the future events will be. How do we engage with events? Is there an appetite for events? Um, I think there is. You know, there's so many things that you can't do uh, online that you do get from an in-person event. And as a speaker, it's just great because you can actually respond to the audience. You can hear their laughter. You can know if, if they're with you or you need to give a bit more energy. But I mean, how is your experience, Mark, with the events and conferences you were involved with and any reflections on sort of the role that events will play in, in our future as human beings? Well, I could sure see the excitement with which people were back to these events, these annual mm. conferences that hadn't been held for a year or so. And and uh, and certainly in the US, you know, uh, in-person events are back in a big way. Um, the, the, the U.S. business really does rely on that. They've got the scale mm. in the U.S. with 330 million people to do things large. Uh, any any conference or industry just has a lot of people, a lot of businesses as part of it. And so the scale means that it, it can work economically. The, the conference I was part of had not only a lot of delegates attending, it had a lot of corporates and, and commercial entities as part of the expo, uh, you know, massive, mm. um, a lot of uh, exhibitors. Uh, and so and so that makes these events work. In some ways, it subsidizes the cost of the delegates. Um, it tends to make them multi-day, which we don't so much have in Australia. So our events are a bit smaller. Mm. We do have expos, but they're a little tighter. And and maybe one day, one and a half days is, is what we tend to go for, you know, just getting a lot of efficiency out of the time spent, uh, whereas multi-day, three, four days is, is more what you get in the US and a lot of workshops, a lot of breakout sessions, whereas again in Australia, tends to be more, if it's just a one day or, or one and a half days, it tends to be a lot more main stage stuff, um, more efficient keynotes in terms of the time allocated, you know, a lot of uh, content crammed into a, a shorter period of time, which makes for a great experience. But um, you know, it tends to be efficient for for cost and um, and and time reasons. So yeah, I did find that difference over there. Um, but certainly, it was great to see. And what goes with a multi day as well as a lot more social activities and events around the actual um, conference part. And the Americans tend to do that in a big way. So certainly good to see events back. And I think it's it's the future uh, because that networking, that connection, that that social collegiality. As well as seeing and, and hearing and, and interacting with with you know, what's happening, uh, best happens in the room uh, rather than uh, just on the screen. And, and so I think that's um, that's good to see it back, and it's certainly the future. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, events are a lot more. And if we, I mean, the main space we operate in is kind of business corporate events. Um, and I guess there's two main reasons if we're just thinking really basically why people would run one or um, attend one and it's to learn something or uh, have professional development or engagement in that regard. But then also there's the networking and there's the the fun aspect and the experience. And 
I remember we've we've given a lot of commentary about the future of work, the future of the office. You know, there was some clickbaity articles doing the rounds over the last couple of years. Is the office dead? Uh, if we can all work from home, what's the point in having a place that we can come to? And we've given a lot of commentary and insight around offices and work is more than just where we go to have productive outputs. It's about connection and relationship and fun and they actually help us be more productive in the same way that I, th- I think what I was seeing in the events that I was involved with was having really intentional, um, obviously keynote speakers and, and thought leaders who can come in and share new ideas and inspire people and educate them and, and inform them about something new or different, but also that ex- experiential side of the event. Like you mentioned, there was a big expo attached to the first one I was involved with in Portugal and they had kind of set up um, and it's the first time I'd been involved, but they had just gone all out. Like the expo, you could walk around for hours looking at and there was ro- robots coming around, you know, because we were talking about artificial intelligence and robotics. And then you've got um, kind of they had these little huts set up to give out food at lunchtime. And it was just so experiential. I was like, oh, I want to be a- an attendee here. And I did. I got to go and attend and network with other speakers. So, yeah, there's there's so much more than just events are so much more than just a place to go and learn because if that was all we needed them for we would just do it all online because it's easier and we might not have to travel but the, the networking the relationship building with other people the experience side of it is just something that we haven't had for so long so I would certainly agree with you Mark that people are keen to get out and about yeah definitely <laughs> so. and probably there's going to be the the hybrid interaction in conferences you know there will be the allowance for people who can't actually get there uh, to tune into some of it or, or, or get hold of some of the sessions uh, certainly the event I was at and I think we'll see more of it in the future uh, not every speaker was live on the stage there were some pre-recorded uh, sessions short and really well delivered uh, as well as some um, some some virtual delivery uh, but that just added to the experience and uh, we've got audiences now that are far more tolerant of that because we've all experienced a lot of uh, delivery of content where someone hasn't been standing on a stage. We've been all in, in Zooms receiving that. And and so, uh, you know, I think that the hybrid event, uh, not every speaker needs to be physically there, a pre-record delivered as live, um, uh, even with a facilitated Q&A at the end or, or a, a speaker um, coming in virtually um, can work as part of the program. I don't think it ought to be the whole program. It definitely loses something if we can't actually interact with a speaker and have live people there and on the stage or on a panel. Um, but certainly there's there's great ability to have a mix of presenters and a mix of attendees uh, now that we've got the technology so well tuned. Yeah, it's it's really great. And as I mentioned, you know, as from a speaker's perspective as well, I mean, so I'm so thankful, as I know you are, Mark, for the hybrid opportunities. And sometimes it's nice not to have to travel, but then there's also great perks to being able to to travel and obviously make, you know, tag on a holiday if you're going to a faraway place in the middle of their summer. But also from a I think professional development perspective, I really appreciated the opportunity to sit and listen to other people from other places around the world and their different perspective. And I guess that's the great role that an event can have in terms of you get out of your immediate context or your industry and you go because the events I was involved with is around sort of marketing and leadership and communications and just to hear different people's perspective and to go, okay, this is what people from Silicon Valley are thinking and this is what they're um, focusing on with regards to marketing or, oh, that's a different perspective. I'd never thought about it like that. So it's it's a great way to, to learn and have that professional development. And I guess it relates to both of us in terms of we were speakers at these events. So what were we speaking on? And, and both of us were speaking about the topic dear to our hearts, um, which is generation alpha and 
obviously a real privilege to be acknowledged as thought leaders in this space and to share our insights on that. I mean, I know from my perspective, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's a real privilege to be asked to travel so far away, so much logistics and admin and cost involved. Um, and so I often find there's a little bit more pressure to, you know, present a very engaging presentation and one that will transcend different um, people from different places around the world. But it's just fascinating to, for me to reflect on Generation Alpha as such a global topic. I didn't feel like my presentation even needed that much tweaking as to what I would present in Australia because we are talking about a global generation, they're globally connected and the world is kind of ready, I think, now to sit up and, and notice that they're, they're kind of coming and definitely the future-focused organisations. But Mark, how is that for you? How was your Gen Alpha content received on that sort of global stage? Well, as you found in Europe, I found in the US, um, you know, seamless. Uh, and, and the fact that you know, you're on a stage in Europe and I'm I'm there in the US talking Generation Alpha highlights. Firstly, the global recognition of content now. And I had another speaker who was coming in from Ireland. You mentioned some from Silicon Valley there. And and, and that's that's probably what's even accelerated over the last couple of years is a recognition of the global connection of the global trends and therefore of the global experts to give input into what we're experiencing. We've been through a global pandemic. It's reminded us that we are all connected and that what happens over there has impacts here. And it's great to see that that's being recognized around content and expanding people's uh, knowledge and, and, and really giving them some insights that might not be from their neck of the woods, but uh, but are important for them to understand. So, so yeah, that that Gen Alpha uh, content went really well for my audience also. And being a global generation, uh, we do see a lot of homogeneity with them. Uh, they whether they are born and raised in Asia or Australia or the US or Europe, uh, the connectivity, the platforms that they're interacting on, where they're going to for information, the brands, the movies, the music, the fashion, the foods, uh, for them are more global than ever before. And of course, there's going to be those nuances and those cultural differences based on background. That That is always there. And it's not as though every one of these nearly 2 billion Gen Alphas are the same. But they certainly have more in common than their parents or their grandparents have had. And that's this this global connection and this convergence that we see with Gen Alpha. And that's why our research uh, that we've conducted now across a few countries has relevance here wherever we go if we're talking about Gen Alpha, um, because you know, global and digital and, and mobile does define them and, um, and it adds value to audiences wherever they happen to be. Yes, absolutely. I found that too. Gen Alpha is such a global topic and really widely received. And I think when you are at a conference and you're sharing about the definition of Gen Alpha and people realizing that the oldest of them will be teenagers next year. They're going, wow, it is time to sit up. Although sometimes I feel like I still do get maybe a few questions on the relevance or is it too early to be talking alpha because aren't people still trying to understand Generation Z? And that was literally the, I had a conversation with one of the other speakers and she said, you know, great presentation, loved it. Uh, are Gen Alphas too young, though, for us to be thinking about? And this was a marketing conference, and we always want to be careful about thinking about children as consumers. But, I mean, our perspective is, no, it's not too early, and, and future-focused organisations are thinking about Generation Alpha. Mark, did you, did you ever get that sort of feedback, or did you get that feedback even more recently? 
Well, yeah, it's certainly something to help people understand. And it's a common question is, what is the difference between Generation Z and Generation Alpha? Because the Gen Zs born from 1995 to 2009 are still young, um, early 20s at the older age, but teenagers at the younger age and young teenagers. And then the Gen Alphas, as you've said, are about to enter their teenage years. So there's there's obviously um, a similar life stage being shared. What's the difference? Well, think about those Gen Zs, they have not fully been raised and shaped in this digital social media smartphone era. In fact, uh, when Instagram was launched, uh, the the Gen Zs, the oldest of them were 15. And the mm-hmm. iPad came around, you know, at, at 15 years of age for them, they, they had a life uh, of laptops uh, prior to to the, the devices of today. And in fact, they were using the Nokia phone. That was the big phone for them as they were entering their teenage years, 12, 13 years of age before the smartphones emerged. And so back to the Nokia phones, they were slide flow, phones and flip phones. And they had hard buttons there uh, rather than obviously the, the device, the smartphone of today, which is just a screen. And that has opened up the interactivity and the camera on them and the all-in-one app uh, app for everything on the phone, the all-in-one device uh, that is everything that they need. That was the experience of the Gen Alpha, not the Gen Z. And so these Gen Alphas globally have shared this experience. Now, in the uh, decade or so of the Gen Alphas, that hasn't changed. It's still the world of the social media platform and the smartphone and the device and the the digital everything and the three clicks away from any piece of information on the planet. Uh, So that hasn't changed in a decade, whereas obviously it did change in the formation years of the Gen Z. So that's why I was saying that the Gen Alphas in some ways are a homogeneous generation because they've shared this 21st century. They've shared the digital screen-based era, the the device and the connectivity, um, which was different to the Gen Zs that transitioned into that. And, um, And so that does make the Gen Alphas distinctly different from the Gen Zs, and we can draw a line uh, from the the Z to the Alpha to define the current era. Yeah, and I think that's probably where there is a little bit maybe of confusion around what are the differences because there aren't they all so global and also digital and those sorts of things. But you're right, it's it's been a different um, yeah 12, 13 years that has as far as this generation, meaning Generation Alpha, have been alive. And I think for me, just again, it was great to be at these conferences and to sit and listen to the other speakers and to hear what other thought leaders from around different places across the world in different industries um, and sectors are thinking about and, and talking about. And um, a lot of these um, events are focused on the future and what's to come and where things are going. And one of the speakers at um, this conference that I spoke at in Italy was from, uh, we call it Adidas here, and I think over there they call it Adidas. And uh, his role was uh, all about launching that brand into the metaverse. And the metaverse was uh, something that just kept coming up, probably because I was there to talk about Generation Alpha and they were very linked, the, the topic of the metaverse, to this next generation who are kind of already operating in almost early stages of it, meaning the gaming platforms like Fortnite and Roblox uh, and Minecraft. But it was just really interesting to hear because earlier on this year, we put out our top trends of 2022 and we talked about the metaverse in that trend. And I just feel like particularly on the in that global context, it was just really the kind of the buzzword and everyone was keen to hear about what it is. And for many 
people attending this conference. Like you had a lot of probably Gen Ys and older in attendance. Some Gen Zs were there and everyone is scratching their head going, what even on earth is the metaverse? That's the whole point. It's not even on earth. It's not physical. It's this virtual world. Um, I mean, Mark, how how do you define the metaverse uh, to people who ask it? Did you have people? Was it a topic of conversation when you were away as well? How, wh- what are your thoughts on the metaverse is really the question. <laughs> well, it's it's quite a theme. As we look through the lens of Gen Alpha into the future, understanding the metaverse is going to be key because it's sort of like the internet that previous generations engage with. The metaverse will be something of the future where you won't just go to a website, but you will enter into the metaverse to engage in in, um, in in the learning or the connection or the the shopping um, within the the platform, and as uh, you know, we've said it's the it's the internet you don't go to, but you 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 get into you you inhabit, um, mm. and so it is this uh, it's this, this virtual uh, place. Um, now these these places that you can go to have been around since the internet. Second Life was an early vision of it uh, where you had an avatar and you would enter into the the, the, the virtual world and you would uh, connect and you could buy real estate and build a house. But that was that was Web 1.0. Now we're at Web 3. And uh, whether it be the virtual reality um, opportunities with with the glasses and and the, the the technology advancements, whether it be the internet everywhere and the power of the of the the, the wireless uh, to connect the speed of internet connection, just the advancements in the coding and the and the experience, um, or just a new generation. But all of that have come together, and it's it seems strange for us. Why would anyone want to spend time within a particular? Um, space on the internet. Why would we spend money buying real estate or, or for that matter, currency or being entertained there? We can just go to a website or go to the real world. You know, uh, it's sort of busy enough in our real world. Why would we want you know another world? Um, but but Generation Alpha don't think like that. I mean, I think about my own son. I've got some Gen Zs and uh, my youngest being a Gen Alpha and he's not interested in physical currency. If he does some extra jobs and I say, well, here's $5, he says, oh, look, can you just give me some V-Bucks instead, you know, the Fortnite currency or some <laughs> Robux? Uh, because that virtual currency means more to him than physical currency. And what does he want to spend it on? Virtual uh, um, uh, services and and skins on on Fortnite or, or extra you know, weapons that'll help him up-level in the game. So here we've got a generation their first commercial or, or customer experience is spending virtual currency in virtual stores to buy intangible things that can help them in an experience. That's the metaverse. They're, they're into it already, and they don't need convincing. And that we raise our eyebrows, our eyebrows and think, what, cyber currency and NFTs and metaverse? It just doesn't make sense. That's the point. We're not getting it because we're of a different generation and all the more reason to get it and to look more into it. You, know, you didn't have a massive global company like Facebook rebrand to, net, to Meta for nothing. They have done their research. As the big tech companies have, we've conducted some research on Gen Alpha for some of them because they're recognizing that the future is alpha, the future is virtual, the future is a metaverse. Uh, and for this first generation who have only ever known life in the 21st century, the first fully born in this 21st century, they they get it and they're tuned into it. And that's why the future is meta and already um, Gen Alpha are starting to, to engage with that metaverse. Yeah, it's, it is 
it's hard for us us to understand and to comprehend. It's that generation gap. I even like to think I'm pretty across the trends being in this field and, and across the trends of Gen Alpha. But for me, even the metaverse, we're trying to wrap our head around what it is. But like you said, for Generation Alpha, they're kind of already operating in in it, in these games like Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft. And yeah, the 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 experience you were sharing about your your son is is very similar to a story that one of the speakers told on the stage and just around this next generation being Gen Alpha, uh, they care more about what their avatar is wearing than what they're wearing or the accumulation of physical things. And it's, again, it's probably relating back to those intrinsic human needs of belonging and acceptance and, and peer validation at that young age, especially, but expressing itself in this virtual world that they're already yeah. operating in. So it's, it's fascinating to observe. And I remember one of the quotes at the conference, which I was like, oh, I want to bottle that up and put that in, in the book or in the report was from this, uh, this guy from Adidas. And he said, you ask any of the big companies like Nike or Prada or any of the other ones who are, you know, making headways or experimenting or innovating into the metaverse, you know, why are they doing that? Why are they making ventures into the metaverse? And he said, the answer to that question for all of them is Generation Alpha. And it was just a very powerful uh, quote around the importance of this generation and these brands who are already thinking about the future and how this generation are engaging, which is, yeah, very different to those of us born in a different century. <laughs> yeah, totally. It, it shows the gaps and the and the lens, the times that shaped us and what determines what's good value, how we interact, what we expect from a shopping experience. We value tangibles above intangibles or certainly um, real things above uh, virtual things, um, but not so much this generation. And, and so we as adults today look at cryptocurrencies and think, oh, you know, that's an absolute roller coaster ride. Not sure if there's value there. And we see the the Bitcoin uh, challenges that, that have gone on there. We, we look at NFTs and think, why would someone spend $2,000 on a board ape yacht club avatar or, or, yep. or art work or go to open sea and, and, and buy some of those NFTs? And, and, and there has been some fraud and crypto ripoffs and there, there no doubt will be some collapses in these markets and in these coins, no doubt. But that doesn't mean the future still is not some form of cyber currency that people won't continue to spend money on virtual artworks and that they won't inhabit um, a metaverse to go to for learning rather than just going to a website to learn something. Why not enter into that training room in the metaverse and watch and experience the, the session in that theater in the metaverse and interact with other people that are there as well, you know. We, we see some hiccups at the moment, but this is the very start of the this this virtual side of things. It will grow. Uh, the Gen Alphas are recognizing that, and that's why a lot of the big brands and corporations are looking into it. It's yet to find its feet and, and, and what it'll look like, uh, but certainly it's here to stay. And if we can understand something of it, I think we can respond and, and find opportunities to meet those real timeless human needs, but even in a virtual sense into what that looks like in the decades ahead. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's such a big topic that everyone I think is keen to understand and get a grapple of if we're convinced that it is part of the future, especially for these young kids today and as they yeah foray into their teenage years. So uh, we have planned to have a few more episodes all about the metaverse and exploring that and, and getting our thoughts and insights and maybe going external to find some other people's thoughts and insights too. So look out for that in the uh, coming episodes for this season of the Future Report. But that brings us to the end of the episode today, Mark. It was so great to catch up with you uh, around, yeah, the international events and traveling sort of 
post-COVID, even though we're sort of in COVID still, and, and just the Gen Alpha content of the metaverse. So thanks so much uh, for your time today, Mark. Thanks, Ash. And if you'd like to stay up to date with McGrindle's latest insights, you can always subscribe to the podcast, follow us on social media, or head to mcrindle.com. And for content around Generation Alpha, which we spoke a bit about today, we've also got generationalpha.com that's got a whole bunch of resources and infographics and articles about this youngest generation and their future. So once again, a big thank you for listening and bye for now.